Thank you very much and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a policy analyst with uh, the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and I'm delighted uh, to be moderating uh, this second panel. The question before us is, is austerity the answer? How should a government deal with a fiscal crisis? Should it spend more or less? Should it cut or increase taxes? Should it cut regulations or increase them in order to, quote, limit future crises? Following the liquidity crisis of 2008, the Baltic countries cut government spending by some 10% of the GDP, indirect taxes rose moderately, all countries implemented a number of fundamental structural reforms, including liberalization of the labor market. In 2011, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania grew by 7.6%, 5.5%, and 5.9%, respectively. Other countries adopted a different mix of policies. Real spending rose in Britain, France, Greece, Portugal, and Spain. It flatlined in Italy. All six countries increased direct and indirect taxes, sometimes dramatically. Structural reforms have been minor or non-existent. Today, growth hovers around zero in Britain, France, and Italy. Spain, Portugal, and Greece are in recession. As far as I know, no country tried to cut taxes, red tape, and spending at the same time. And that is a pity, because it would allow us a very interesting social experiment. The debate over solutions to fiscal crisis is far from over. Part of the problem rests in the definition of austerity. Does it mean spending cuts, or tax increases, or both? Another part of the problem rests in assumptions about government spending and growth. Can government spending stimulate growth, or will it exacerbate the existing problems facing the national fiscus? In recent months, we have witnessed a spirited debate between two warring camps. In one corner is the heavy, heavyweight champion of Keynesianism, the Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman, who argues in favor of increased government spending. In the other corner are the likes of Peterson Institute's Andres Aslund and our first speaker, Veronique Derugy, who say that more spending and higher taxes are not the way forward. Now, a lesser woman, indeed a lesser man, uh, would be quite terrified of being, being taken on by somebody like Paul Krugman, but not Veronique. She positively reveled in the controversy uh, that their uh, very public discussion and conversation caused. Veronique is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, she writes for Reason, National Review. She was my former colleague here at Cato, then went over to AEI, and we are delighted to have her to start off our panel. Thank you, Marianne. How does this work? It goes. Um, 
It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here uh, in this beautiful auditorium. Thank you, Mike, for, uh, Mike Tanner for inviting me. And it, it is an immense pleasure to be on a panel with Pascal Sana, who is, and I don't say it lightly, my absolute hero. I mean, a lot of my life and a lot of, a lot of what I do today, I do it in part because of him. He's a true champion of freedom in France, which is not an easy task. So is austerity the answer? Um, it's, it's, as Marion has said, I mean, it's been really the source of a lot of controversy, a lot of fights, a lot of debates. Um, and I think a lot of the problem rests on the definition of austerity. A way that it's been traditionally defined is basically what economists says is like austerity is the type of policy that you pursue in order to reduce the debt to GDP ratio or uh, deficit. Uh, uh, ratio. Um, you can see it in all the government's uh, plan. I mean, they, they, they set targets, and that's what they called, the policy that follow are called a deficit. Of course, when you, uh, the austerity, of course, I mean, there are many ways to reduce debt to GDP ratio. You can cut spending, you can increase taxes, or you can do a mix of both. And uh, one of the things that is utterly lost, it seems, in the debate is the type of austerity that we are seeing here implemented in Europe. I will confirm what, uh, what Marion has said. Um, there is none of these options, whether it's cutting spending, raising taxes, or doing a mix of both, that is acceptable for um, Keynesian economists. For instance, Paul Krugman has said repeatedly that, you know, believe in austerity in order to address that problem is believing in the austerity fairy tale. Another of our Nobel Prizes said that austerity as implemented in Europe, meaning spending cuts, is austerity suicide. So what is it? I want to say and repeat what Marion has said, which is like they are really two important questions. Which are the two type of austerities, uh, uh, which of the two types between spending cuts or, or actually I should say three, tax increases or a mix of both, that are the more conducive to actually reducing the debt to GDP ratio? And then the other important question is, once you've implemented these, um, these packages, this, this austerity package, what is the impact of gro on growth? Well, the good news is actually a lot of economists have looked at this question and try to actually assess what are the best type of fiscal adjustment to reduce debt to GDP ratio. The chart that you see is one that represents the finding of Alberto Alessina and Silvia Nardania, but this is only one of 21 studies that I found addressing this problem and they pretty much all find the same. And what they find is that spending cuts rather than a mix of both and certainly more than tax increases are the most effective way to reduce debt to GDP ratio. The thing that's also interesting when you look at the review of the literature and the latest work, uh, by the way, I have, I have a list if you guys are interested. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a book that came out um, uh, last year uh, by the IMF re looking at all how to chip our debt away. And one of the things that comes over and over again is like the successful type of adjustment, the type of spending cuts that you need are the one that engage in structural reform, reform social transfers, that's entitlement in the American context, and also cut the size and scope 
of government. And it makes sense when you think about it, because that's the kind of, of uh, policies that shows that lawmakers are serious about getting their financial house in order because they are tackling the two biggest special interests in any country, and that's seniors and public employees. The thing, so that's the good news, is like in theory we know what to do. The bad news is that lawmakers rarely do this. In the 107 cases that Alessina and Ardania um, study, and Andrew Biggs and Kevin Hassett at AI have worked, uh, I've, I've improved on, I shouldn't say improved, I've, I've, I've uh, added to, uh, to their research, they found that 80% of lawmakers, when faced with the choice, what they do is that they go and they do a mix of both. Slight spending cuts, often cut to the growth of spending rather than actual cuts, no structural reforms, and large tax increases. And if you think about it, it is because they are catering to these same interest groups. So only 20% of countries are effectively implementing the type of policy that successfully reduce the debt to GDP ratio. What about, the, what about the impact of austerity measures and spending cuts on growth? Well, there are two time periods that we have to look at. The long term is absolutely settled. You shrink the size of government, I mean, in the long term, it's good for growth. The question is, what happens in the short term? In the short term, the debate is far from settled. That being said, there are um, a few lessons that have emerged. The first one, when you try to think of what type of policy actually stimulate the economy, tax cuts are not stimulative. Tax increases are not stimulative, but tax cuts are more likely to be way more likely to be stimulative than spending increases. I mean, even center left-to-center economists like Christina Romer and her husband, David Romer. Christina Romer was the former uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under the Obama administration. Their research has shown that if your uh, plan is to shrink the deficit, if you reduce uh, taxes by 1% of GDP, you will get roughly 3% uh, percentage growth, uh, GDP growth. So it's it's pretty, this is a pretty now um, accepted uh, finding. The, the second is that fiscal uh, adjustment achieved through spending cuts rather uh, than tax increases are less uh, uh, recessionary than the one achieved through tax increases. And finally, the third one is that spending-based fiscal adjustment <laughs> accompanied by the right fiscal policy like sound money and the rule of law and these type of things tends to be less recessionary and even can produce good short-term results on growth. So with this in mind, we should look at what the Europeans have done, right? And, and think in terms of this big supposedly backlash against austerity. Um, here you have selected countries that were very much the talk um, of, uh, during this debate as evidence that austerity had failed in Europe. And one of the things that we heard over and over again is that austerity was failing and these countries weren't growing because they were cutting spending. And what this chart shows, and it's based on European uh, Commission data, right, is that actually 
They really haven't. I mean, when you look at France, they haven't. When you look at the UK, they certainly haven't. Um, when you look at uh, Italy, it's flattened, but it's certainly not a spending cut. Spain, uh, Spain is cut slightly, and Greece, it's a little unfair to put Greece there because it kind of doesn't show as, uh, as the scale of the cuts. They've cut way more than the others, but certainly nothing compared to the level of, uh, of spending cuts that, they, that would be required. So when we talk about these savage, savage spending cuts that took place in Europe, I mean, the data actually demonstrate that when some of countries have cut spending, but they were never savage. It was never gigantic, and many of them actually really haven't either uh, cut spending. More importantly, one of the things that's actually totally absent from the debate is the fact that all of these countries have massively increased taxes. And I'm still waiting for for, for Paul Krugman of all the people who think that we should increase spending or who have been denouncing austerity in Europe to actually write articles begging Europeans to stop raising taxes. Because even in a Keynesian context, I mean, in times of recession, they want to stimulate aggregate demand by increasing spending, but they also argue that you should be cutting taxes. So where are the headlines? asking from a Keynesian perspective to stop the tax increases in Europe. So now let's look, this is kind of an alternative. You see Greece here um, has uh, engaged in some uh, spending cuts, but it's, it's quite minor. Um, so when you look at actually the overall uh, result in the last three years, what's happening in Europe, you realize that actually uh, for every dollar in spending cuts often defined as reduction in the growth of spending, you've got nine euros in tax increases. Well, the thing that's interesting is that the laws called for more tax increases that actually materialized. <clears throat> they still managed to boost through massive increase in the VAT uh, tax revenue. Of course, we're not surprised that large, large, large tax increases don't lead to the expected collection in tax revenue. But nonetheless, here you have it. Uh, it's a, it these packages are massively tilted, um, um, massively tilted towards um, tax increases. What about England? I mean, we've talked a lot about England um, not growing, right? Well, remember, one of the problems is marketing. I mean, for our side, I will say, because it doesn't stop European, uh, European leaders to talk about how they're engaging in this savage spending cuts, right? Remember uh, George Osborne, the chancellor, when he talked about austerity measures in Europe, what he talked about is he was going to cut three pounds uh, of, of government spending for one, increase, one pound increase in taxes. Well, the reality is actually been exactly the reverse. This is the case of, of, uh, of England expenditure. When you look at it, no matter actually how you cut it, the bottom line is adjusted for inflation, and the top line is in nominal terms, spending has increased. When you look at the latest data, um, Her Majesty's budget, or um, as it's called, I love that. I would like it if we did this in the US. I don't know. Um, but uh, it has a glamorous name, I hope you'll admit. Uh, 
spending is going up. Spending is going up. And here is a list of some of the tax increase implemented in Europe, and they're pretty punishing. VAT obviously is increased. Uh, they've implemented a tax bracket, then they removed it, then they're talking about putting it back. They've had a temporary uh, increase in the, in the payroll tax, if capital gains tax. They've had a whole lot of taxes against. Who's talking about this? The people who are claiming that austerity has failed, why aren't they talking about these massive tax increases? Ireland, I please apologize, I apologize for this chart, which represents very unfairly Ireland. For some reason, when I put my PowerPoint presentation together, I couldn't find my Ireland uh, uh, chart. And you see at the bottom is Ireland. And as you see, there is a slight dip in, um, in Ireland spending, which is mainly the product of Ireland not renewing their bank bailouts. That's hardly, um, that's hardly spending, um, uh, spending cuts. Um, more importantly, you probably can't see it, but these is a shortened list of all of the tax increases that have taken place in the last three years in Ireland. It's a lot. And as you see, the VAT increases is pretty prominent there. Um, it, it reached 23% at a level. They then cut it, it back down and then back up. Uh, anyway, capital gains taxing increases to 25%, carbon taxes, uh, income tax up, uh, motor tax rates, uh, I mean, pretty much exercise on cigarette, pretty much every tax you can think about, the Irish have done it. So to conclude, I think there is a very strong case in the academic literature and even in the fairly Keynesian literature that the right type of fiscal adjustment that you need and that will actually reduce the debt to GDP ratio are packages that are made of mainly spending cuts, right? I see this as a good thing. I want the size of government to, to, to shrink. So actually, I think there's an extremely strong moral case for it. But the economics of it seems to actually uh, be proven to be also correct. As for growth, the long term is not even a debate. The short term, it's the, the academic literature hasn't, hasn't settled it. But there are a lot of lessons. And the, the main one is that tax increases are a bad thing. Tax cuts are a good thing. They stimulate growth, even in the short term. And I think there is a lot of evidence that Europe has not done this. And I would urge leaders around the world, whether it's in Europe, but also in America, where our president keeps calling for this balance approach, which is typical you know, the, the mix of spending, uh, increase, uh, spending cuts and, and tax increases that have failed over and over again, um, I, I'm urging them to give austerity, the true type of austerity, the one that works, a chance. Thank you. Thank you, Vera. Right on time. I didn't even have to prod you. Our next speaker is uh, Bruce Stokes. Bruce is um, the international economics columnist for the National Journal, a Washington-based uh, public policy magazine, 
and a journalism fellow at the German Marshall Fund. In addition, uh, in addition, he is a fellow with the Pew Research Center where he works on the Global Attitudes Project. He is currently working on a study for the Center for European Reform on Transatlantic Economic Relations. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, and it's a, a pleasure and a, a privilege to, uh, to be here at, at Cato. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you some of the, of the data. Uh, just to update uh, my resume, I'm now the director of the Global Economics Program at the Pew Research Center. Uh, we do uh, surveys all over the world, including in Europe, uh, and in, we'll be actually doing uh, uh, surveys every six months uh, uh, coming up at the beginning of next year around the world on economics issues, including in Europe. So there'll be uh, a, a great font of data uh, coming up. Uh, but I would refer you to our website, uh, because we already have been doing these surveys in Europe for the last 10 years. Uh, so there's a, there's a good set of, of, of economics-related data there. Um, I wore my, uh, my Euro tie today, because I wasn't sure I'd have a great opportunities to wear it in the future, except as a historical artifact. Um, uh, certainly, if, if public opinion is, uh, is anything, the European public, and I'll show you the data, still support the euro, but, but uh, clearly uh, one of the consequences of uh, the uh, European crisis is a declining uh, faith in the European project. Uh, but uh, it does not mean there's a declining faith in, in the welfare state. Uh, I think that uh, our data and data I will show you from the German Marshall Fund, where I also have worked on their Transatlantic Trends Survey, is somewhat ambiguous about this. Uh, there is actually surprising support, I would say surprising in, the, in a kind of a journalistic sense, for um, uh, uh, spending cuts, uh, even in countries where uh, people are demonstrating in the streets. But as Veronique's uh, data showed, uh, this is often support in countries that haven't had any cuts at all yet. Uh, and, and in fact, our data uh, would suggest that in some of those countries, people don't want, they want to do just what we've done in the past. Well, they haven't done anything in the past. So, I mean, this is, uh, it's, it's, it's mixed, uh, the data is mixed uh, at best. Um, uh, first off, <clears throat> for those of you, and since this is at the Cato Institute, I'm sure you're all strong supporters of the free market system, uh, one of the casualties of the crisis in Europe has been support for the free market system. Uh, so uh, this would not necessarily suggest that people are moving away from the welfare state, but it does suggest that people are uh, uh, upset with the free market system. Uh, as you can see, there's been uh, virtually no uh, decline in support in the U.S., uh, but there has been a uh, decline uh, in a, a number of countries. Uh, in Spain, uh, over the last five years, a dramatic drop in support for the, uh, the free market system, and you have now support below uh, 50%, which is uh, probably troubling. Uh, the dramatic decline in Italy, um, uh, still fairly strong support in places like Germany, as one might expect, uh, and in the United States. Um, another uh, casualty, though, has been uh, what I would say is, is support for the 1957 assumption, which is that if we integrate the European economies, uh, we will get uh, a stronger economy and we'll all be better off. Uh, in fact, there's been, uh, there's the support for the uh, European Union is fairly low now in a number of countries, not just in Greece, but also 
in, uh, uh, it's, it's going down in, in places like Italy. Uh, Czech Republic is, is, has always been very low. Uh, this question is the one that I find most disturbing. We ask people, did, has the European integration strengthened or weakened your economy? This is the um, results for European integration has strengthened our economy. Uh, there's basically little belief at this juncture that, and bear in mind these, this survey was done in the spring of this year, uh, that European integration is good for, uh, for my economy. Um, uh, very few people think the euro is a good thing, uh, uh, the fact that they have the euro. Now, I will warn you that when you ask then the second question, which is do you want to leave the euro, go back to the Deutschmark, go back to the, to the Peseta, you still get majority support in most countries. For uh, Germany, for example, is about two-thirds, et cetera. So it, it, it is still, people, people don't want to take that leap into, uh, into the dark. They don't want to take this leap of faith into going back to a, a system that is now uh, over 10 years old. But, uh, but the idea that the euro has been good for them, people don't uh, believe, and people do not support uh, the European Central Bank. Uh, um, uh, this is putting this a different way. Has, has overall economic growth actually been weakened by integration? Uh, and so that means, has economic integration been bad for your country? I think the, the real challenge here is that uh, you see this dramatic increase over a number of years in people saying it's actually be making us worse, not better. Um, uh, obviously, this is a, as a reflection of the, of the crisis. Uh, we, we were able to show correlation. If you think your current econo economic situation is bad, you're much more likely to say that economic integration has been bad for you. Uh, but uh, so obviously, if the economy turns around, these numbers might turn around. But right now, this is a very serious uh, uh, challenge uh, uh, to, to European integration. Um, we asked a series of questions in our survey this spring on uh, uh, related to what to do about the crisis. Um, what's interesting is in this first column, uh, we, ask, we ask a three-part question. Do you think that there's, there's been uh, uh, too many budget cuts already? Uh, is spending just about right, or do we need to increase spending? Uh, and if you interpret everything's just right or, or no more budget cuts, uh, and since everything is all right would be, in many cases, <laughs> We've, we've, increased, we've increased spending, then the, the opposition to further austerity in uh, the March-April time frame in Europe was fairly high. Uh, uh, I'll show you another uh, slide in a minute from the German Marshall Fund. They surveyed two months later. There's some suggestion there that maybe there's some movement, but of course the questions are slightly different. You're not asking the exact same people. But uh, this is a fairly disturbing number in terms of, of support for, for further austerity. Uh, obviously, another way to, to look at this is should, should we uh, help other people in trouble? Uh, as you can imagine, um, uh, uh, the uh, Brits are opposed. The Germans are actually, and, and the GMF data showed this, and the Germans are very divided on this, despite the, the, whatever headlines you read. It's basically 48, 49% in favor, 48, 49% against bailouts. Uh, so the, the, the German public is, is persuadable on this, one should say. Uh, and uh, a, a terribly important uh, question, which is 
having Brussels look over your shoulder as national economies prepare their budgets, which I would point out to you is now the law of the land in Europe. Um, basically, no one supports that, <laughs> except the Germans. Um, and um, uh, the, uh, uh, well, actually, the Germans even posted in our survey, uh, in, the, in the GMF survey, they, they support it. Uh, but uh, the reality is, uh, in, our, in our question, we asked a question that said, you know, uh, would you support this happening, comma, even if it means the loss of national sovereignty? Uh, the, um, the European Union asked the same question at about the same time without that caveat, it just, it, without the, the, the uh, pointing out that there was a price to this. Uh, Needless to say, Brussels was very proud of the fact that everybody thought this was a good idea if you didn't point out to them that it was a loss of national sovereignty. Uh, but, it, but it is a loss of national sovereignty, and people oppose it. So this is, again, uh, a sign of the difficulty of keeping any kind of budget cuts in line because uh, the public really opposes uh, Brussels uh, uh, trying to control that. This is the German Marshall Fund results two months later from Mars. And you do see that, if you see the very middle line there, uh, the pointer doesn't seem to be working, I apologize. Um, uh, they did the survey in 12 European Union countries. 50% of the public said, uh, this is the average of the 12 European countries, that they supported uh, uh, decreased spending. Um, you had uh, surprisingly high support, 65% in France. Uh, now, this was taken after there had been more political debate in France in the run-up to the presidential election, so maybe people's sensitivity to this was heightened. Uh, on the other hand, as Ronique pointed out, there has been no cuts in, in uh, France all, uh, up to this point. Um, and of course, what none of these questions ask, uh, which is the question that uh, some of the national surveys ask, is what people would like to give up if you cut, to cut spending. Uh, we know from the United States, when you ask that question, people support cutting government spending, but don't you dare touch Social Security, don't you dare touch Medicare, don't you cut, touch defense spending, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, there's nothing left in the budget. So um, uh, one has to be a bit concerned that this is um, um, uh, uh, over-exaggerates uh, uh, the support for decreased spending in Europe. And as I say, our findings two months earlier showed even less support for cuts in spending. But this may be a sign that things are moving in that direction. We just we don't know for sure. Um, this is go back to our data for a second. The, the Pew data uh, was interesting to see that there's not a whole lot of difference in most countries ideologically on the question of uh, reducing government spending. You know, should we do more? In other words, has it not gone far enough? Uh, you did get a big left-right split in Britain of nine percentage points. Uh, you got a 10 percentage point difference in Spain. Uh, but in Germany, there's, I mean, it's really the center who wants more, which is FDP, which would make sense. But uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, ideological difference in a number of these countries. Um, the, um, to look at this question over, uh, uh, again, at, at, at should Brussels be looking over your shoulder as you do this cutting or, uh, of spending uh, and dealing with your budget? Uh, only the Germans uh, in the GMF survey, remember, they didn't say this in our survey, but the Germans in the GMF survey said, yes, this is the same thing that, G that the GMF survey found last year. 
we joked at the time, I must say, because I was at GMF at the time, that this is because the German respondents didn't ever believe that Brussels would look over their shoulder. It was just that they could look over other people's shoulder. Uh, but maybe Joe could actually answer that question better. But the point is, nobody supports what is now the, uh, the fiscal constraints that uh, uh, Brussels can legally now impose on countries. Uh, bear in mind, the French um, uh, just approved this yesterday in the National Assembly. Um, this is, again, the GMF survey. Uh, we, they ask about uh, uh, bailouts. Uh, they actually found um, uh, strong support for bailouts uh, in uh, places like France, um, Spain, obviously, because they'd be a recipient. Uh, Sweden uh, well, was, was, was strongly in support. Netherlands, uh, over 50%. Uh, UK, very low support, uh, as we know. Poland, also very low. Germany, again, kind of split, 49, 40, we, we found 48. Um, if you look at the political divide on this issue of bailouts, uh, what you find is among likely donor countries, Germany, uh, there's, the left is more supportive, as you might expect. Uh, in Britain, uh, the left is much more supportive. Of course, countries that are going to be recipients are very strongly supportive, and everybody in the, across the political spectrum uh, supports that. So uh, that's the, uh, an overview of the, of the data we have. If you look at the national uh, surveys in France, in Germany, uh, what you find is uh, um, uh, that the tax increases, for example, that Veronique was, was mentioning, uh, most recent data in France, because we now have a, uh, a, a, a tax increase program put in, put in place by Hollande, is uh, a, a huge furor uh, about this tax, these tax increase, proposed tax increases. Before they actually hit the government policy, there was support for the 75%, 60% uh, uh, of the French public supported a uh, 75% tax rate on uh, basically the very rich. Um, but they were basically opposed to all, uh, all the other uh, things that were on the table. And I happened to be in France when, this, when the tax increases were announced. And I must say that the uh, reaction was universally uh, uh, opposed. But uh, this, this would appear to be what the government is going to do, no matter what. So uh, in closing, I would just say, I mean, public opinion gives us a sense of where the public is on this. Uh, my sense is that um, there may be a recognition, uh, even in places like Spain and Greece, of the need to cut. Uh, but uh, we know from public opinion data that people are often theoretically much more fiscally prudent than they are practically physical, fiscally prudent in the sense that when you begin to ask them um, uh, specifics about particular government programs that they benefit from, uh, they tend to not want those cut, uh, even if they support uh, fiscal prudence uh, in a more theoretical sense. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce, very much. Um, the public may not be in support of spending cuts, but I still think that Big Bird should get it in the neck. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What's the French equivalent? Our next uh, speaker is Pascal Salin. Pascal Salin is professor of economics uh, at the Université Paris Dauphin. Uh, he was president of Montparnasse Society from uh, 1984 to 1996. 
He's the author of uh, numerous articles in French and English, both in France and abroad, being published many times in the United States, in Latin America, Asia, and elsewhere. He's a regular writer for uh, the French newspaper La Figaro and writes articles uh, for, various, for various other, other newspapers. Please help me welcome uh, Pascal Salon. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here at the Cato Institute, which is doing such a beautiful work. And I must say, I have a particular pleasure to be on the same panel as Veronique de Rugy, my former bright student. <laughs> uh, now, I have to speak about austerity policies, and I think that first, uh, to try to evaluate these uh, policies, it is necessary to assess the recent past and present situation. I think the, the present situation is the outcome of three different but interrelated phenomena. What has been called sometimes the eurosclerosis, which is a long-run uh, uh, trend, the recent financial and economic crisis, and finally the debt crisis. Uh, what is eurosclerosis? Eurosclerosis means a low rate of growth and a high rate of unemployment, and many countries in Europe uh, are in this situation. And the causes are quite known, I think. It, uh, it has been already said today. Um, one main cause of this uh, phenomenon uh, is taxation and the uh, social uh, and the welfare state uh, because it uh, brings a double destruction of incentives, both from people who pay taxes and uh, uh, contributions and from people who benefit from uh, uh, from uh, spending, public spending, and uh, uh, social welfare. Um, I think that uh, we have especially to uh, stress that uh, uh, one negative aspect of this uh, situation is that taxation and uh, social security and uh, social and the welfare state uh, are quite often uh, destroying incentives to save. And I will come back to that later on. So one main cause of this eurosclerosis in many European countries is taxation, and the other one certainly is regulations, and especially on the job market, which means a higher cost, um, less flexibility, and more risk. So the financial crisis occurred in this environment, and it added to unemployment and to the slow growth. The mainstream, the mainstream explanation, as you know, of this uh, crisis is uh, the instability of markets, the existence of greedy capitalists, and so on. The real causes are quite different. All causes of the financial crisis are uh, linked to state interventionism. And the main one, certainly, is the instability in the monetary policy. In the beginning of the century, there has been uh, money creation, low interest rates, and it created uh, distortions in the structure of production and the structure of prices. Uh, to that, we may have the housing policy in the US, regulations, and so on. I don't want to develop that. But I was struck by the fact that, at least in France, but maybe in many countries, the commentators uh, mainly opposed Keynesians on, the, on one side and monetarists on the other one, and they said, that Keynesian, uh, the Keynesian economics was the right approach uh, to the crisis and to the policies to be implemented. 
And most people were ignorant of the Austrian theory of the business cycle, which is, in my opinion, the only theory which is able to explain uh, the uh, financial crisis. And I think this is important because uh, Austrian economists have stressed that the main problems are not global problems, but sectoral, structural problems. And we have to address that. And it also means that the best way uh, to solve the crisis is to let market come back to normal structure of production and prices. But before discussing austerity policies, I would like to stress the role of savings because it creates links between what is called the eurosclerosis, the long-run evolution, and the financial crisis. In many countries, or I should say in many countries in the world, and it is particularly true in the, in the US, there is a lack of savings, which means a lack of accumulation of capital and therefore a slow growth. But I think that this slow, uh, this slow uh, rate of savings also have, has a very, had a very important consequence on the financial crisis because monetary authorities tried to compensate for that by creating credits of monetary origin, uh, which is a pure illusion. And so policies which would restore incentives to save in Europe and in the world would both allow Thank you. Uh, solving the long-run uh, problem of eurosclerosis and helping to go out of the financial and economic crisis. So it is paradoxical that people say that uh, uh, Keynesian recipes, uh, Keynesian policies have to be implemented, for instance, and there's a form certainly of uh, increased uh, public deficit and increased public expenditures. Although uh, Keynes, uh, Keynesian economics uh, <coughs> supports the idea that there has been a crisis because there was an excess of savings. And they explained that there was no adjustment by interest rate because of very specific uh, assumptions. Uh, you do know that, uh, liquidity trap, in interest in elasticity of investment, and so on, which are uh, assumptions based on another assumption, which is that be the behavior of investors and money holders are, uh, is irrational. So I think that fundamentally, the Keynesian approach is wrong, but it is adopted by most countries. Uh, and that's why we had a debt crisis. Uh, just to quote an example, I was struck in my country in France. Uh, President Sarkozy decided in order to help going out of the crisis, he decided to borrow a lot of money. And after that, he asked the Council of Ministers and the special committee, how will I sp shall I spend this money? It is really crazy, you know. Just imagine an entrepreneur saying, I borrow a lot of money, and after that, he, he asked to his staff, what can I do with this money? We would consider that it is completely crazy to decide like that, but it is how politicians decide. So uh, the reaction of many governments was to spend uh, money, and the consequence has been huge deficits, the debt crisis, and no recovery. So now we have that, and it is striking that some months after having, after having decided to, uh, to borrow money uh, to, uh, uh, to increase uh, spending, 
uh, many governments uh, uh, have difficulties in reimbursing their debt, and they are more or less deciding austerity policies. Austerity policies means reducing the budget deficit. But there is a, an implicit Keynesian meaning in that term, because it, it means that uh, there will be austerity for everyone and it may hurt recovery and citizens will suffer. So I think it would be better not to speak of austerity policies, but of what it is, budget deficit reducing policy. Now, government, uh, which are in this difficult position, uh, have to solve a trade-off. On, on one side, they believe that uh, public deficit is helping to the recovery of the economy. But they consider also that there is a negative aspect of the deficit and the debt, which is a loss of confidence of financial markets. And this means a possible increase in interest rates and a vicious circle because they have more and more to spend in order to reimburse, to pay for the debt. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, it is bad for the national prestige and governments don't like that financial markets are evaluating their, uh, their management. Uh, and they also consider that it is bad for national independence because they may have to ask for the support of the IMF or European authorities. So they have to solve this trade-off and they give various answers to that. And I must say that uh, uh, Austrian economists have not this problem because they are uh, certain, they do know what it, uh, it is, uh, what is necessary to do uh, and there is no, no trade-off to decide. Uh, anyhow, uh, governments in Europe, many governments who are in this embarrassing situation, uh, meanwhile, uh, consider that it is necessary to have an expansionary monetary policy in order to distribute less credits. Uh, it is strange because uh, normally Keynesian uh, economists don't care about the fact that by borrowing, uh, the government is uh, shifting resources from the private sector uh, to the public sector, maybe because they consider there is an excess of savings. But then how uh, they want to uh, support investments through money creation. Now, which austerity policy and which policy mix? After the crisis, the policy mix which has been adopted was public deficit and expansionary monetary policy. The best would have been no budget deficit, let market adjust, and no money creation. Once more, uh, we must stress that problems are mainly sectoral and structural problems and not global problems. There is no a problem of a lack of demand, uh, and that's why recovery policies uh, did fail because they did not get, they did not uh, adopt the, uh, the right approach. Um, now we have both an economic crisis and a debt crisis, and there is a reason why uh, governments are discussing austerity policies. But as it has been already said, there are two different austerity policies. One is decreasing public expenditures, which means austerity for the government, and the other one is increasing taxes, austerity for citizens. citizens. For Keynesians, it doesn't, it is, it's not that important to decide between both, because they, they care about the global deficit, and they don't see uh, the negative uh, consequence of uh, taxation on incentives. 
But as it is easier for a government to increase taxes, uh, most often austerity policies mean an increase in taxes. So the preferred policy by, by authorities, the preferred policy mix is increasing taxes, small decrease in expenditures, and an expansionary monetary policy. And there is a risk of a vicious circle because the increase in taxes will reduce uh, income and therefore taxation, taxes, uh, revenues. The best policy mix would be a huge a decrease in public expenditures, tax cuts even. Uh, Frederick Bastia, the great economist, uh, when he was a member of the parliament, uh, at the time there was a public deficit, said decreasing taxes when there is a public deficit is not foolish, it is wise. And I think we, we, we ought to do it. And especially uh, to decrease taxes which, is, uh, which are uh, opposed to uh, incentive to save, deregulation and no monetary uh, creation. Uh, this could help solve uh, the long-run eurosclerosis and would help getting out of the uh, financial crisis and the debt crisis. Now, uh, some European countries are adopting what is called the golden rule, which means that uh, they have to limit very rapidly the public deficit. And the risk is that they will increase taxes because if ever you decrease taxes, there is first a time when there is a, an increase in the public deficit and after two or three years, it was the case with, with Reagan, the revenues are increasing. So to comply with the golden rule in the short run, governments may decide not to uh, decrease expenditures but to increase taxes. So there is a risk, and the risk for a, a steady stagnation in Europe. So I am rather anxious about the future of Europe because of, uh, for all this reason, uh, with also the fact that uh, there is a tendency to monetize the debt and to create more monetary expansion. And uh, as a consequence of that, there is a tendency to centralize decisions in Europe uh, and uh, uh, to have uh, what uh, many people desire, which is uh, uh, less competition in policies. Uh, there is a, a great risk in that. One final word. Uh, I didn't mention the euro crisis for one reason, because I do believe that there ought not be a euro crisis. The problem is a problem of budget deficit. It is a real problem. And it is an illusion to believe that you can solve uh, such a problem by monetary manipulation, sponsored by devaluation, by monetary creation, and so on. But the problem becomes a euro problem as far as it is accepted that the European Central Bank monetizes, for instance, uh, the debt of Greece of other countries. The, it is, in some sense, uh, uh, the contrary of what was uh, uh, accepted when the euro was created, uh, but from this point of view, also uh, wrong decisions uh, are taken. And once more, I am anxious for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pascal. Much appreciated. Our last speaker is Miroslav Beblavi, who is a member of the Slovak Parliament and um, an associate professor of public policy at the Comenius University in Bratislava. I first met uh, Miroslav many years ago when we were both PhD students at uh, the world's greatest university of St. Andrews in Scotland. 
uh, no offense, professor. And um, whilst I came to uh, Cato, he went back uh, home um, to become a member of uh, a, a reformist government that introduced, amongst other things, uh, flat tax in, Slovak in Slovakia and um, uh, privatized the social uh, security uh, system. Uh, so um, I think he's well qualified to tell us, um, to talk to us a little bit about um, uh, austerity and reforms in Europe. Miroslav. Thank you very much, Marian, for this kind introduction, and uh, thank you all for being here and willing to listen to what I'm going to say, especially as I'm going to deliver several messages that will be contradictory to some extent. And uh, the reason is that reality tends to be complex. And as a politician, I'm not allowed to say that. Uh, as an academic, I always want to say that. And here, far away from home, I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to indulge myself in, you know, on this front because... Uh, very few voters. I, I only counted about two or three of Slovak voters in the audience, so I think uh, uh, the cost will be low for me. But I will start with the quote from your own countryman who once said that for every complex problem there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. And that, that is a sentence I always like to, always like to remember. So let me, let me start with my somewhat contradictory messages. I have basically just three points to make. Uh, the first question is about the price of austerity. And the question that I'm asking is, did the U.S. overall buy anything with a more relaxed fiscal policy compared to Europe over the last five years? And the answer appears to be no. Now, let me expand a little bit on that. Uh, many policymakers and economists have observed that the recovery from the financial crisis has been much slower than previously, both in Europe and in the U.S. And uh, there are two different lessons you can take from that. Uh, you know, imagine you're sitting in a car and, you know, you're pushing your foot on the pedal and the car is not accelerating as you used to. You can push harder and you can, or you can start thinking about, you know, what's wrong with the transmission mechanism from your pedal to, to the engine. And the policymakers so far have mainly thought about the former. So they have been thinking about various ways of, of pushing harder on the pedal. And uh, they fail to take into account that... Uh, the crisis resulted from an unprecedented credit boom gone bust, and there seems to be a substantial body of research, not just Reinhardt and Rogoff that was mentioned earlier today, but others that show that recoveries from recessions or financial crisis recessions are weaker and slower. So there's, that, that just seems to be the fake, fact empirically, and, um, and that seems to be the fact now. So what happened? What happened was that the U.S., after the crisis, put its foot on the pedal much more than Europe. Uh, the, if you look at the numbers uh, for the U.S. and for Euro uh, as a whole, uh, U.S. let its fiscal deficit rise above 10% of GDP at the top moment, whereas Eurozone had just 6% of GDP at the top moment. Even now, the general government deficit today still runs around 8% of GDP, whereas in Europe there is now just little more than 3% of GDP on average, and next year it should be even, even lower. So, you, uh, so Eurozone has run a much more restrictive or much less expensive, depending on how you want to term it, fiscal policy than, uh, than the U.S. throughout the crisis. And, so, and as a result of that, of course, the U.S. public debt has increased much more quickly than the overall public debt of the Eurozone countries. Because you always have to remember, Eurozone is not just the sad Greeks and, and uh, threatened Spaniards. It's also the powerful Germany and sort of somewhere in the middle, uh, France, et cetera, et cetera. And... Uh, for the Eurozone as a whole, which is the proper uh, comparison basis for the U.S., because it's a similar continental-sized closed economy, uh, 
we can clearly see that there was much less fiscal spending throughout the crisis. There was much less reliance on the Keynesian answer. I mean, there was one. Uh, as you can see, the deficit is, is not 1% or there is no balanced budget, but, but there was just much less than in the U.S. And the funny thing is that the GDP per capita today is still about 2% below the 2007 levels on both sides of the Atlantic. So on the production front, there doesn't seem to be much that has been bought on, in aggregate. And the unemployment rate in the U.S. and the Eurozone are now both about three percentage points higher than previous before the crisis. So, again, uh, Europe has higher unemployment, but it also had higher unemployment before the crisis. I mean, those are the structural issues that were discussed. But uh, in terms of what was bought through the short-term Keynesian policy, uh, the answer is not, not much, or not, not much that we, can, that we can measure. So, on balance, it seems that the post-crisis environment really is different and that the macroeconomic policies have done little to improve the matters. This is not to say that the fiscal expansion following the crisis was completely unnecessary or wrong. I don't feel qualified to, uh, to judge on that. What I feel qualified to say based on this is that the much looser fiscal policy run by the U.S. and actually even by the U.K., but we are not discussing U.K. today, uh, has not delivered any tangible short-term benefits that we can observe in the macroeconomic results. So, Conclusion, austerity, uh, sorry, more relaxed fiscal policy in the U.S. has not seemed to be delivered any short-term benefits compared to more restrictive Eurozone policies. The second question, which might be more forward-looking, is a question of can structural reforms ensure relatively painless recovery and solution to our fiscal problems? So if we privatize, if we cut regulations, if we, do, if we cut uh, social expenditure, uh, can we quickly get out of the hole that we are in? And uh, overall, the answer appears to be also no, and that's where the contradiction comes in. So on my first question, I was the proper rightist. On my second question, I will not be the proper rightist, and that's where the heresy starts. Uh, in European discourse, I mean, I come from Europe, obviously, there is a lot of Germany, uh, emphasis on Germany and structural reforms. And, you know, the, the answer appears to be, look what the Germans did. They did a little structural reforms, labor market reforms in particular, in early 2000s, the so-called hard packages. And look what they have gotten into. They now have lower unemployment than they had after unification of Germany. They have, uh, you know, perfect fiscal now, perfect, quite good fiscal numbers and, and very good economic uh, growth. But actually, when you look at... Uh, individual country level, and you look at the sources of competitiveness, uh, you can basically divide it in a very simplistic framework, but I think sufficient for the, our purposes, into increases in productivity and sort of macroeconomic adjustment. So to put it very simple and bluntly, if you have imbalances in your economy, if you're consuming more than you're producing, you can either cut the consumption or you can become more productive and catch up with the consumption. I mean, the, the, those are very, in very simple terms those two ways you can do. And, uh, you know, the big crises we now have in southern Europe are mainly caused by the fact that the consumption ran away very far from the production capacities of southern European economies. I mean, that's the very simple underlying reason for that. And so another question is, so, you know, that didn't happen just in south. That happened also in east, in a lot of countries of new Europe. You know, there are new members of the Eurozone. But it also happened on average in Europe and America as a whole. And so the question is, what do you do in those situations and whether structural reforms like the ones that we are discussing today can help you quickly close that gap? And the answer appears to be no, uh, especially in the short term. I mean, uh, you have to go through the painful consumption cuts. I mean, uh, there, is, there doesn't seem to be any magic bullet of radical structural reform that will unleash the powers of the economy so that very quickly you can, you can close these deficits in, in cons between consumption and production. So you need to both 
unleash the pro productive powers of the economy, especially for the medium term, that was being discussed especially by Professor Salin. But you also need to, unfortunately, cut the consumption uh, for the short run uh, to, to get that balance. Of course, theoretically, if you have unlimited financing from the market, you don't have to do the formula. You can just wait until your economy slowly catches up, which is what I have no doubt the Greeks and the Spaniards would love to do. Unfortunately, uh, there doesn't seem to be enough time and financial market patience to do that. So, so in principle, it's possible. Uh, but, uh, and that's to some extent what the U.S. is doing, but without so much of the structural reform, uh, but uh, just waiting for the, for the cycle to catch up with the, with the economy. So now let's look at what has happened in, in Europe on these. Uh, the funny thing is that both southern and eastern countries, which were hit most and, uh, by, by the crisis, have done these huge cuts. Uh, as Veronique demonstrated, uh, in the south they're not so huge. And actually, I have to object, we are Europe too. I mean, you, I didn't, I didn't see you anywhere on, our, on your I didn't see us anywhere on your slides, either Estonians or Slovaks or Czechs or anyone. I saw them on the few slides, which was gratified. And we are Europe too, and actually we have, uh, the Baltics in particular, but also Slovaks to some extent, we have done some, some, some strong stuff. Uh, but uh, going, going back to what I was going to say, uh, let's look at what happened in East and what happened in South in this package. And by package I mean cutting the consumption dramatically, sometimes less dramatically, and trying to unleash the productive powers of the economy through deregulation and reform. In the East, and to some extent in Ireland, that seems to be working. Uh, and it's not just this time. I mean, these countries have gone through that before. In Ireland, this was after 1987 crisis. In Eastern Europe, this was in 90s, and then again in early 2000s. So this is not the first time. And uh, when done well, it seems to be working. It seems that uh, you go through very painful political and economic adjustment, but then you get lots of FDI, you get the existing factories getting better, you get a lot of human capital investment as well. And... Uh, and what happens is that the, the exports start to grow, and you, you become a really powerful export, export production center. That's true. I mean, the country I come from, Slovakia, together with the Czech Republic, now have the highest number of, of cars produced per capita in the world. We are the number one leaders in the world in terms of how many cars we make up each year per, per inhabitant. Uh, ten years ago, we were, I don't even know whether we were in those league tables. Uh, we had in Slovakia we had one plan that that was mainly putting together Volkswagen cars that were produced actually in Germany. So uh, so in East it has been possible. Some were more successfully, some were less, but it has been possible to to do this. Uh, to some extent, even Germans have been able to do that. I mean, they've cut their consumption too after the post-unification boom ended, and they unleashed the productive export capacity of their economy, especially through the labor market reforms. So in East, to some extent in Ireland. Tentatively, to some extent, in Germany, it seems to be working. Some versions of that are more radical, like the Baltic ones. Some versions are a little bit less radical, like the German ones, but they seem to go through the same path. However, we're not seeing the same thing in, in South. We're not seeing the same unleashment of, of powerful, of productive forces in the South. And not because they don't try. I mean, I, I don't want to become a defender of the South because that's not very popular today in Europe. Uh, but, uh, but if you look at actual productivity growth, over the recent years, the European champions are not Germany, not even Slovaks or Czechs. The European champions are, uh, are the uh, Hellenic Republic or Greece, to some extent also Portugal, and Spain is, now, Spain is now getting into the game. So you can see some tangible benefits from these reforms in Southern Europe. But the, there is another, but the problem is that it's improving a situation which has been so bad for so long that it doesn't allow for quick adjustment. So what happens is that 
what seems to be happening in the South, and that's my sort of not very optimistic message, is that you're seeing the strong cut to consumption, you're seeing the strong dose of austerity combined with deregulation, but maybe not sufficient, but even when it's quite ambitious by European term, it doesn't lead to the same export growth and to the same production capacity increase that, you were, that we see in the East when the same things happen there. So, and that seems to lead to permanent recession because the, you know, the government cuts, so there is, less there is the sort of this less artificial consumption, but that doesn't seem to lead to equally strong response from the productive economy on the export front. And so you go sort of round and round and, uh, and you, don't get the, you don't get the results. It's not clear what is, the, what is the reason for this divergent performance. Some people claim it's the human capital differences that people are more educated in countries like Estonia, Slovakia, or Ireland than in Spain or, or Greece. I'm not so sure uh, about that, though there seems to be much higher levels of secondary education, that's true. Uh, some people say that it's just uh, an accident of uh, competing with China at the wrong time in your, in your history. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe it's just the less tradition of exports. These economies are traditionally much less open than the, than the Eastern economies or Ireland or Germany. But whatever is the case, we now seem to have a sort of tale of two outcomes in Europe of, of sort of austerity combined with structural reforms. One, quite tough, but going towards happy ending. Uh, hopefully, in, in, in the East and, and to some extent in, in Germany and Ireland, and one that doesn't seem to be going towards happy ending, at least so far, which is, which is the South. And uh, the last point I'm going to make on that is that, however, it's not even clear how these lessons apply to the U.S., because as we said in the beginning, U.S. is a large, closed economy, uh, whereas even Germany, which is the largest of the economies that I was analyzing, is a, is a fairly small and open economy by global, by global standards. So... The, le the application I will leave to, leave to you. I will close with a personal note. As Marianne mentioned, between 2002 and 2006, I was responsible for social policy in my country uh, because I was Deputy Secretary of the Labor so Social Affairs and Family Ministry. And uh, I was responsible for massive cuts in social expenditure. We went from about 19% of GDP to 15 to 16% of GDP, which might not sound much, but uh, it is, uh, to anyone who has, ever, uh, who has ever looked at those numbers. And uh, so I'm certainly not someone who, uh, who, who refrains from tough things when necessary, but uh, I have to tell you that there are two things that make this easier. And I'm not sure they are present today in the U.S., and there might also be heresies in this room. So if I'm carried away at the end of my speech by, by the security, please, uh, you, will, you will know why. The first one is that actually a moderate dose of inflation helps. And the reason why that is the case, and we had inflation not high, I mean about 5%, so when I say moderate, I mean moderate. I'm not certainly in favor of high one. Is that governments find it much easier to restrain growth of nominal social benefits than they find to cut social benefits. This is not just the case of Slovakia. I mean, there are even academic papers on Sweden in the 90s when they did this massive adjustment that it's just much, much more easier to sell this to the public, just stop, stop the indexing, you know. Uh, and that's much easier to sell than to, to cut the benefits. So if you have, you know, if you have 5 6% inflation, that adds up quite quickly. After, let's say, three, four years, you really decrease the real value of benefits if that needs to happen much better than if you, if you cut it nominally. So that, that helped us, that helped Swedes, that helped a lot of people when they needed to adjust their consumption and their production capacities. And it also helped because we did all these big structural reforms that bring the medium-term benefits that were mentioned by Marianne, flat tax, uh, private pension pillar, work incentives in the welfare system. But they don't bring immediate macroeconomic benefit and, you know, benefits on this side. So if you are sort of dependent on the, if you're dependent on the financial markets for immediate financing, uh, they are not very impressed by that. I mean, they are very short-termist as well. And that's one of the reasons, why, I mean, I don't want to defend the European governments, but sometimes I think one of the reasons for these foolish policies that you showed 
is that uh, they are still better in market's eyes than, than wise long-term policies which don't deliver immediate, uh, immediate bank, bank for the buck. So moderate inflation coupled with, uh, you know, that allows indexation, uh, zero indexation and thus gradual decrease in real benefits is an important part that allows you and creates breathing space for these long-term structural reforms that you, that you need. But the other reason is also that these things tend to happen more when politicians know they can survive them. And uh, let me give you an example. I mean, I was not the top-level politician. I was deputy secretary. But uh, I got these questions all the time when we were doing these courageous reforms that were actually quite discussed in Europe at the time. And uh, uh, I was asked by many people abroad, you know, how come your prime minister, how come your finance minister do this? I mean, why do they do this? And this was at the time when there was no financial crisis. So there wasn't such a strong external imperative. Why are they doing this? I mean, you know, it must be quite unpopular in the country. And I said, yes, it's quite unpopular. It's not popular. And they said, at the moment, uh, and they said, so why are they doing it? Why, you know, and I said, well, look, we have a prime minister and a finance minister we had at the time who already did the radical dozer reforms in early 90s, which ended up in 92 with one of them being kicked out of parliament. His party did not even reach the parliamentary threshold. And the other one being relegated to a small 8% party in the parliament. Uh, and I said, so... But the lesson they took from that, that less than six years later, one of them was a prime minister and the other one was a finance minister. So uh, you can go, in our systems, you can come back. There is a, there is a comeback possibility. And I said, uh, Angela Merkel or David Cameron know that one, if they do this badly, they will never come back. They're dead. So that really creates bad incentives for politicians. Uh, and uh, if you look at these countries that, we are praising today, whether it's Sweden, but more importantly, Estonia, Latvia, Slovakia, they all have politicians who either managed to win re-election in the middle of austerity or somehow otherwise came back. So in these political cultures, there is now a lesson that if you do it right and if you can show some uh, leadership but also some results, uh, you can survive. Or, and if not survive immediately, you can come back later. And if politicians believe that, they might do reforms. If they don't believe that, then they do them only under the pressure of the markets, and they do them in the stupid way that Veronique has shown. Thank you very much. Thank you, Miroslav. I, um, our, our time is up, but uh, I, I would simply um, want to address something you, you have said in your speech about, the, you know, you, you have these two uh, regions emerging, Europe, uh, Southern Europe, and Eastern Europe. But the one thing that I think did make a difference in terms of why the Southern Europeans are not performing as well as the Eastern Europeans is precisely the question of taxes, the huge tax increases that, uh, that Veronique has, uh, has spoken about. Um, our time is up, but I would encourage you to please remain seated because uh, our lunchtime uh, speech is going to occur right after... Uh, this uh, panel, and after that, um, lunch will be served. Thank you very much.